0: All right, well, some mornings. Hope you're encouraged by those songs. You see, the songs that we picked, the songs that have become even the favorite of our church over many decades now, more than, more than 50 years, are songs that point us back to Jesus Christ. They remind us that the Christian life is not going to be lived by me pumping this out through my own strength, by me just being diligent to check off boxes of lists of do's and don'ts, by me having this sense that I want to just uh, impact other people through, again, my own effort or convince other people that I'm spiritual so that they'll think more highly of me or they'll respect me because they think I've, I've arrived or I've really matured in my faith. And the truth is that the things that encourage us are the things that point us back to Jesus Christ. Even as we get into this section in Romans, this is going to be a long section, just looking at the unrighteousness of man, the condemnation of man, the, the guilt of man. And Paul's going to spend all the way through the third chapter, the 20th verse or so, convincing or, or explaining or working up to a conclusion that is unescapable, which is that all men stand guilty before a holy and a righteous God. Now, you'd say, what's with all the focus on the brokenness of man? What's with all these different examples of how man is unrighteous? And he he gets at some really obvious things here. We're not going to get to it this morning, but towards the very end of this chapter, a, a laundry list of things and then he moves on to there's categories of things in terms of you have immoral man, you have moral man, you have right religious men. And all of them, though, the conclusion of each one of them is a, apart from some kind of a righteousness that God could impart, that God could impute to our account, we would stand guilty before God on the basis of his holy and righteous standard, that we'd, we'd fall short. And you say, so is the point of that to focus on all the different ways that that brokenness can express itself? You know, know, we have a tendency to do that, to to focus on even the brokenness of the world and all the different ways that immorality or ungodliness or even morality and religion, but mostly it's immorality that we're focused on. We sort of ignore the rest. Uh, But how all of that points to man's rebellion and rejection of God. Now, in in a visible way, are those the things that most clearly point to man's rebellion and rejection of God? Yeah, because they're not hidden; they're at least being honest about it. See, the moral and the religious man, the self-righteous man, the judgmental man—it's all hidden. That's we're talking about a Pharisee situation there, where it's whitewashed tombs that have rotting corpses on the outside, on the inside, but on the outside, whitewashed tombs. And so you say, well, what's the what? What would be the value? of being convinced that man is unrighteous apart from God's imputed righteousness. It's not to depress you. It's to show you that you have a problem, that you have a need for a savior. That's the point of it. We don't don't live in this space of dwelling on the brokenness. We live in a space where we recognize that on account of that, we're gonna need help. And that's the whole message of the Bible. You need help. You're gonna need me to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And then you're going to need me for every moment of every day thereafter to undertake, to work, to direct, to lead, to guide, to equip, to enable, to convince, to, to convince you, to challenge you, to convict you of your need to trust me more, to keep your eyes on me, to depend on me. And so it's not a sad story. It gets a little bit rough as we look at some of the the specific expressions, but Paul's only writing about them to convince the audience that you have a real problem, and the solution to that problem is faith alone in Christ alone, his finished work on your behalf. So I hope you don't get hung up on some of the, the hard things or some of the nasty details that he even gets into to some extent, because that's not the point of the Bible. That's not the point of the songs that we're singing. It's to say, in spite of that, God still loves me. In spite of that, God still made a way for me to experience victory over the power of sin in my life. Despite this, God has a bright future planned for me and he has a bright life for me in time, one that could be described as having fullness of joy or abundant life or full, full life, not just a partial caricature of that life that God had planned. That's not the message for today, uh, just as an aside. But it's something that I think about as I think about even our title. Before we get into our message, so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together. Pray that these matters would be very clear. That you reveal your indignation, your righteous indignation at sin, your, your unhappiness, your unacceptance of sin, for the sake of showing us that we have a need for you to make us right with you, to offer us a solution to the problem that we face. Pray that we'd always, as we even focus on the Lord's Supper or communion at the end of our service today, that it would be with a mind that remembers that because of your great love for us, that you loved us so much that you sent your son and that you want, you showed us your love or demonstrated that love by being willing to die for us. And then you asked us shortly before you left to love one another the way that you loved us. The focus is on the sacrifice, the selflessness, getting out of the equation. So pray that that would come out clearly even as we look at this passage this morning. Pray that you'd give me wisdom so that what is said would be helpful, that it would be applicable to people's lives, that it would have an impact on them. Pray for the Sunday school teachers that you'd give them strength as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to get there before you for once. Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is God's Anger is Revealed. God's Anger is Revealed. Now, today we're going to begin an extensive section of Romans that primarily focuses on explaining man's problem as it relates to God's righteous standard and also to explain man's complete unrighteousness. So there's this sort of comparison that I guess is being set up there. A contrast, that's the word I was looking for, between God's complete righteousness or perfect righteousness and man's complete unrighteousness. And as I was thinking about even this problem as it relates to that distinction between what God's standard is and who, who God is and then what his standard of righteousness is and how, fall, how totally and completely man falls short of that standard, it made me think about our Christian brother here, or our brother here in the church, Dave Sandstrom, who he describes this universal human predicament with this phrase, Houston, we have a problem. Now, raise your hands if you have any idea what that's referring to. Houston, we have a problem. Okay. I I asked for a show of hands because I assumed, I kind of guessed at what it's meant, but I had no idea. And I've heard Brother Dave say that a whole bunch of different times. Houston, we have a problem. He uses that to just describe man's condition apart from God. Now, for those of you who care, it was said or it was stated over the radio a couple of different times by a couple of different people on Apollo 13, the mission to the moon, after an explosion occurred en route. So if you're on a spaceship traveling towards the moon and there's an explosion, perhaps this is what you'd say. Houston, we have a problem. Now, he says that sort of tongue-in-cheek is just a, a, a joking way to, to speak about Man's problem as it stands with a complete and total lack of something that's needed, which is righteousness. We lack something that we need desperately because if we're going to be with God who is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, we're going to have to be made right because God can't have any fellowship with sin. So if we want to be where he is, instead of the antithesis of where God is, the place where he is not, a place that ultimately will be an eternal damnation, there'll be an eternal destruction, eternal torment, an eternal fire that never goes out, eternal anguish, hell, the lake of fire, however you want to refer to it, then something's going to have to be done to give us access to God by removing this barrier between us and God caused by our sinfulness. And so Houston, we have a problem. And see, last week the gospel message was said to reveal the righteousness of God, but our passage this morning explains that wrath or anger represents God's response to man's rebellion and rejection of him. Now, it's going to be expressed in a whole bunch of different ways that are going to be covered through chapter 3, verse 20, but a whole different, diff, bunch of different ways. Today, though, he focuses or uses these phrases expressed through ungodliness and unrighteousness and then he talks about even what man is doing to suppress God's truth. Now, later passages are going to highlight the universal nature of this problem and the judgment, God's judgment, that man faces as a result of this problem. And so he's, he's trying to appeal to logic and to build, this, build up to this message of how you need God and his grace, how you need to respond in faith to God's provision to deal with your sinfulness, apart from any human works, about, apart from any human efforts. He's, he's building toward that as he's gonna get into sections about justification and then sanctification and then glorification. Now, if these are terms that are just zipping over your head, keep coming back. It's here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. We'll be explaining some of those terms that maybe you don't know. But for this morning, we know that what he's building towards is to show man that they all stand guilty before a holy God. And that's what he's going to attempt to do or begin doing here, beginning with the 18th verse of the first chapter this morning. So the main takeaway is going to be that sin, whether it's expressed through sinful thinking or sinful behavior, it greatly displeases God, greatly displeases God. Hence our title, God's anger is revealed against that sinfulness. Now let's take a look at this section of chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 23, Lord willing, this morning. Let's pick up in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So three things we'll get into there that are exhibits or examples of how man is rejecting God and rebelling against God. Verse 19, now we're getting into they don't have any excuse for doing this though. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even in His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And how did they express that? They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals, and finally creeping things. Now the last section which Lord willing will cover next week talks about some very specific expressions of that mindset of rebellion and rejection. You can look forward to you can look at that yourself so that you have some advanced knowledge of it. Verses twenty four through thirty-two is the plan for for next week. Again the plan is to sort of move through this relatively quickly, but there's so much packed in here. So let's start by looking a little bit more closely at these first two verses. Now this is really the theme. This is the primary point. The rest of it expands on this. But this is this is the takeaway. So verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So that's our first complete sentence. It takes two verses to, to have that thought. So this verse 18, it begins a section here that focuses on sin and the condemnation associated with it. Remember, if we look back to verses 16 and 17, God's righteousness was introduced. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So as we're thinking about The theme of the book, the salvation of mankind that is available through the good news message of Jesus Christ. Now, salvation in every phase of life, we're going to see that all are covered, including even a section on the salvation of ethnic Israel, and so national Israel, I meant. Now, verse 17, for in it, in the gospel message, the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith to faith, we talked about there 's a few different ways to take that, from the faith that was understood in the Old Testament to the expanded faith that 's now made available through progressive revelation here today for faith for faith that leads to growing faith is another way to look at that. Some view that as Old Testament faith to new testament faith again that 's just an expansion of the first the first one, but in regardless of who you are is sort of the idea. The righteousness of God has been revealed, and that's my take on it. Regardless of who you you are, where you've been in history, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The only way there's going to be life available for the righteous man, that word just could be substituted with righteous. Anyone who is going to be made right or is going to live a right life is going to be living that life by faith a life of dependence on God, a focus on God doing for us and through us what we could never do for ourselves or through ourselves. And that's the idea that led us up to this. So as we think about that, now we see the discussion now about God is righteous, it's revealed. Now how about man? What's man's situation? Well, Houston, we have a problem. That's where we're at. So we have the sin and condemnation associated with our lack of righteousness. Now, you could label this whole section running through three twenty as man has a real problem or Houston we have a problem. You could label it as the need for God's righteousness or the need for righteousness. The the, the takeaway by the time it's all done is that we lack something that we need. And so I hope you can have that as your big picture as you're looking at this. Now the main thought of these two verses is the wrath of God is revealed. That's That's your main thought. The wrath of God is revealed. See wrath of God here refers to God's displeasure, his righteous indignation, or anger in response to the sinfulness of man. One author states, God's wrath is the just and measured response of his holiness toward evil. God's wrath is the just and measured response of his holiness toward evil. I really like that. somebody had shared that with me. I think that's very good. God's holiness is incompatible with evil. God is not okay with sin. God is greatly displeased, saddened, angered. We're applying some human terms to God, but that's what this word wrath means. It can be substituted with righteous indignation, anger, or displeasure. Now, God's response is going to be expanded on later in the chapter in verses 24 through 32, not the specific details of what's bringing about this response. But I hope you can see that when we even get to those details about specific expressions of rebellion and rejection of God, God's wrath is directed towards those specific things, those specific behaviors, but primarily to the thinking behind those things. See those things are an expression of a mindset or an attitude that rejects him, that rebels against him, that won't trust him, won't put their faith in him. And so we'll see more of that later on. At, in Psalm seven eleven, you just see this is a theme of Scripture. If you if you think that God is okay with sin, you could look through your Bible and find many different examples of this. But here's one of them from Psalms and. A believer here in church was just, had been looking at a number of the, d- the different early Psalms, the one through 10 especially, but that had kind of tied into where would Paul have gotten his sort of understanding about God's righteousness and his indignation or his anger towards sin? Well, here's one, Psalm 711. There's more we could go to. We're not going to for the sake of time, but it says, God is a just judge, we're talking about his holiness in, in a sense here being on display. And God is angry with the wicked every day. He, God is never happy. He can never respond favorably to sin. And wickedness is just a description of behavior that comes from that mindset, again, of rebellion and rejection of him. Now, you say the wrath of God, that's what we're talking about. God's anger or his displeasure, his righteous indignation regarding sin, it is revealed So if this is our main thought, we've got to really consider this part of it too. It's revealed. Now, it involves something being brought to light, disclosed, or made known. Something that is brought to light, disclosed, or made known. The wrath of God, God's displeasure, God's righteous indignation at sin, God's anger even towards sin, it's being revealed. It's being brought to light. It's not hidden. God very clearly makes it known that he is not okay with sin. So it's disclosed, it's made known. Now, this is a present tense verb, which it refers to an ongoing process or action and action that's ongoing presently. So the wrath of God is being revealed is the idea. God continues to reveal that. Now, he has revealed it through his word. And if his word never fails, if his word will never be lost, if his word will never be destroyed, if we perpetually as Christians, it's being revealed through even the convicting ministry of the Spirit of God working inside of us. If you're even unsaved, all men are given a conscience, we'll touch on that in a minute, where God's wrath or disapproval disapproval related to sin is being continually revealed. Now, if you move on, what is God's anger directed towards or what is the cause of God's wrath? And three specific things are, are identified. The first one is all ungodliness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now, that refers to a lack of reverence for God. It also can refer to an outright rejection of spiritual things, but the focus is on improper thinking. So, a lack of reverence or an outright rejection of spiritual things, and again, the focus is on improper thinking, all ungodliness. So, God is revealing, it's making known that he is displeased with that kind of a mentality, a wrong attitude. Then the next part of this says all unrighteousness of men, insert that because it's all ungodliness and it's all unrighteousness of men. And it refers to anything that violates God's standard of right. But the focus is more on men's actions or improper conduct. So if you put the two together, we have man's improper thinking, man's bad attitude. And then we have man's bad behavior that comes from or flows from that bad thinking or that bad posture toward God, that rebellious nature toward God, that, those rebellious choices as it relates to God. But it starts always with thinking. So rebellious man is said to do this in unrighteousness, which involves trying to drown out God's truth through immoral behavior and outright denial. So how does, as you think about man suppressing the truth, that's the third aspect of this here, and that is just a byproduct of the first two. So if I have ungodliness, meaning the wrong attitude, then I have unrighteousness, meaning an expression of improper behavior that flows from that improper thinking, then what is the natural decision? If if I'm rejecting God, then I'm going to be operating or dwelling in the sphere of darkness. And what does it say in John chapter 3 verse, I believe 19, that men love, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So if I align myself with the darkness of rebellion and rejection of God, if I refuse God's offer of rescue and redemption... Then I'm operating in a sphere apart from him, a sphere of darkness. That's why we talk about bringing the light into the darkness so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be illuminated for those that are currently dead in trespasses and sins, that are currently dead, that are currently looking at an eternity apart from God to illuminate that darkness. And so the natural byproduct of all this is that it says they suppress the truth. And it refers to preventing, hindering, holding down or or holding down the dissemination of God's revealed truth. What does God want to do with his truth? He wants his truth to, to be spread. He wants his truth to be taken to the places of darkness so that all of the world could be illuminated in that sense by God's truth. Now, there's many components to God's truth, but ultimately as we sit here today, as, as we're living in the, the church age, the age of grace, as we're living in the age following Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf, as children of God, born into God's family, indwelled by God's spirit, God has one primary mission for us, and that's to be lights in the midst of the darkness, among whom it says, you shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, that was written 2,000 years ago. Does that continue to be your mission? Does that continue to be the focus of the Christian? It ought to be. It may not be at any moment in time as we're distracted by so many things. It may not be as we substitute some other mission under the guise of even Christianity as being more important than shining the glorious light of the gospel. So we become involved in even other Christian endeavors, many of which are good, but they're not more important than the underlying primary focus, the mission of being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Does anything trump that? The answer is no. Now, some of you think I've been preaching that there's no other thing that you could be involved in. The answer is no. There's many other good things that you can and should be involved in. Many of them are right things. Many of them are even things God would be in favor of. But he doesn't want them to be the primary thing. He wants our focus to be preaching Christ and him crucified. To be shining the light of the gospel into the lives of those who are hopeless and helpless and ultimately hell bound. Now, I would say this, as you even think about some of the things that are just plain depressing to consider. Some of it you would say, well, how about maybe pick your thing. Uh, maybe it's the decline of, of the country. Maybe it's something that it's, it's, the, it's the moral decay of the, of the country. Maybe it's something broader than that. You say, um, I, I see or I'm seeing all of these signs that are pointing me to believing that the return of Christ is, it's, it's, it has to be within the next few days, few weeks, something like that. Maybe it's all of this darkness, all of this evil, all of, all of these things that p- sort of point you in that direction. Maybe then you really get into the book of Revelation. You say, well, if the end is coming, the book that God settles all accounts, if you want to know how to think about Revelation in a, in a very big picture sense, it's God settles all accounts. Okay? Sometimes it helps to have like just one phrase that would help you summarize an entire book. God settles all accounts. But is the book primarily about what's going to happen Before Christ returns or after Christ returns? Huh? Anyone? After Christ returns. What is the next event that we're looking forward to? The rapture of the church. And is that imminent? Imminent in the sense that it could be today. May it be today. Is that our prayer this morning? If Paul was praying, that's how he'd have ended his prayer, right? Come quickly. May it be soon. However he says that, right? May it be today. Is that the attitude? Yeah, as you read Revelation, what does it talk about in terms of what is it going to look like once the Lord returns? Are things on earth going to go real great? Is it going to be a pleasant time to live through? Nope. Okay, if you haven't read it, nope. It won't be. Okay. But is it? Is it, What? what should reading that do in terms of your perspective or your sort of posture toward people. I I submit that there should be only really one main outcome of reading it. One is to find hope because the book of Revelation has a happy ending. So one is to be encouraged. I hope you're encouraged as you think about those things instead of getting agitated as you're trying to predict what stands for what and what's leading up to what. Maybe people have spent their whole lives trying to do that. And there's incredible disagreement about it because it's something that God didn't speak very clearly in terms of, he didn't make it explicitly clear what he meant by a lot of the things that are being prophesied there. We know God will keep his word. We know they'll come true. We know there's value to reading it, to studying it, to considering it, to pondering it. In the first chapter of Revelation, it says, blessed is he who reads this. Okay, so there's some value there. Not, it's not the point. The point is your takeaway should be one of encouragement and hope because it has a happy ending, but the second thing or maybe on equal footing to that is you should be absolutely overwhelmed with a renewed sense of purpose as you say, I don't want anyone to live through that. Are you tracking me, friends? I don't want anyone to go through that. And if you were to think about the people that God has put in your proximity, you wouldn't read that book with any other takeaway other than a renewed sense of purpose that I need to be manning the lifeboats and throwing life jackets to people who are drowning so they don't have to go through that. Amen? I I hope that's the takeaway. I hope that instead of just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into trying to figure out things that God hasn't, He hasn't even said that you will be able to understand clearly in time. He says, at the appropriate time when people are living through it, they'll know exactly what I meant when I was discussing this through this type of language. But until then, many, many people have written many, many books about what they think. And you can take it for what it's worth. Some of it's more convincing than others. Perhaps someday I'll do a study on it. In the meantime, though, I hope you're seeing that this suppression of the truth, the main focus of that is that they're holding down God's truth. They're trying to stop the effectiveness of the outreach of the message of God, God's truth, especially as it relates to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now again, I said, they're said to be suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, which means they're doing it through overt immoral behavior and outright denial. And suppression of the truth, it implies awareness of or knowledge of the truth, which is confirmed or explained here in verses 19 through 21. But if you're going to suppress the truth, you have to first have an awareness of the truth. That's not always the case, but the next verses make that clear. I guess theoretically you could be, have never been aware of the truth yourself, but because of your posture, because of your attitude, because of your behavior, you're actual, actually undermining the dissemination of the truth, even though you never knew it yourself, but that's not, that's not the message here. The message here is that they were aware of the truth, and then they suppressed it, Anyway, now, how was man aware of God's truth? We're going to have a lot of discussion about that here. It says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So we have that word because it signals an explanation of why God's wrath or anger is deserved. They knew better is the idea. Now, what may be known of God is manifest in them. It directly teaches that certain aspects of God may be known. What may be known of God. Does that mean everything? No. Do you know everything about God? No. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts, and my ways than your ways. So no, you don't know it all. No, you never will. But is God wanting to show you more and more and more? Yes. Does He want you to grow? Yes. Does He want you to mature? Yes. In what? In knowledge and in understanding, in, in other things as well. Grow in grace. Grow in your love for one another. But no, this side of glory, no. The other side of glory? I don't know. You could take, you could take a diff, differing views on that too. But He says, then I will know fully as I am known fully. But does that mean I'll be God? No, but I'll be glorified. I'll be freed from the very presence of sin. So it can be known. Certain aspects can be known. Now most translations replace is manifest in them. So what, be, what may be known of God is manifest in them is what we have here. Most have what, what may be known of God is plain to them. What may be known of God is plain to them. The vast majority have that. Now it emphasizes the plain and obvious nature of God's revelation. That's what your takeaway should be regardless. It's manifest in them. You could say it's manifest in them by virtue of a heart that's aware of God, a conscience of God. But if, it's, if you take the other inter, uh, translation, it's plain to them. The idea is just that God has made himself known in certain ways that are obvious, that are plain and obvious. Now, how did he do that? He, sh- he has shown it to them. And then verse 20 is going to expand on this thought, continue and expand this thought. So pick up with verse 20 here. For since the creation... We'll read through 21 because it's all one sentence. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead. so that, with what purpose in mind? They are without excuse. Now, you want some more evidence or more ammunition for that conclusion because, now I'll give you an explanation, although they knew God, as stated as a fact, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, Well, what did they do instead? They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So these verses explain and expand upon how God revealed Himself and His truth to man. And so four carries the idea of because, it signals this explanation just as that second because does. Because. So as you think about how did God, we're coming back to, how has God God shown his truth or revealed himself to man? Well, because since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. There's two aspects of this, and that's the first. That God's Invisible attributes have been clearly seen, and it's said to be since the creation of the world. Now, this is likely a reference to natural revelation. We don't have the time to get into it in great detail, but there's two general, this is not something the Bible does, this is something theologians do in trying to understand the the Word of God. They separate the revelation or how God reveals himself to man into two primary categories. One is natural revelation, one is called special revelation revelation natural revelation referring to creation and i would i don't know where i would put conscience in there and then the other one is special revelation how god reveals himself specifically through scripture through the word the word of god and so in any event god is revealing himself i think this here of course is referring to natural revelations because because it says or alludes to that very clearly a little bit later, where he says, since the creation of the world, these things have been clearly seen. So this is not talking about something that had been revealed on the written pages of scripture, which develops over time, but something that was there from the very beginning. Now, clearly seen refers to Revelation that is obvious, remember we came back to this is obvious this is this is plain this is something that is available for anybody to appreciate or understand now it 's also in the present tense it it is clearly being seen that 's the idea it 's clearly being seen god 's invisible attributes are clearly being seen remember I guess indicating that this is something that is ongoing now it 's presented as a fact, again, indicative mood, this is clearly seen. This isn't a question of some people have seen it, some people have not seen it. It's clearly seen. Now, God's revelation has been observable, it says, since the creation of the world. And again, it reinforces the view that natural revelation is what is being pictured here. Now, how so? How has God's invis- How have God's invisible attributes been seen clearly since the creation of the world? How is God clearly seen in creation is another way of thinking about it. Well, there's a lot that you could get into about that, but it would be something as simple as, as far as for sake of time, if you look at creation, the conclusion that you should have reached is that if something was created, it had to have a creator. As you look at creation, you see in very complex design and the obvious logical response to seeing that design, something that is suited for a very specific purpose, it it's, has no other function other than this very specific thing, that you would say if, if something possesses that kind of detailed design, then there must have been a designer. As you just looked at the building structures of the created world around us, the expected logical response to that by man would be that there must have been a builder if there's a building. See, it takes human beings to try to somehow stick-handle their way around those obvious conclusions. It doesn't happen with anything else, in fact. There's not one child anywhere, ever, that ever picked up a toy and thought to themselves, nobody designed this, nobody created this, nobody built this. This just built itself, came to be, through random chance over time. No one ever thought that. And so that's one aspect of it. There's other things that you could see in nature in terms that would convince you that God has to be behind this. This goes beyond a, a God awareness that's inside of you, a conscience of God that God has given all men. It goes beyond the revelation of Jesus Christ. As you think about what are the three primary ways that God has revealed himself to man, it's through creation, conscience, Christ, and then you could save by default then, in addition to all that, His Word, the Word of God. But as you're thinking about creation, another thing is that just consider this concept of even irreducible minimums. Some call it irreducible complexity. Now, it's a term that's applied to a structure or mechanism that requires several precise parts to be assembled simultaneously for there to be a useful function for that structure or mechanism. It can't have been produced step by step. Every complex part has to be present at the same time for it to function as it is intended. Now, one example of that is even the process of blood clotting. And again, for the sake of time, maybe I'll do some sort of a apologetics thing on how creation shows the handiwork of God, but this is just one of many examples that you could give, where if there weren't all of the components present at the same time, blood could not clot. It couldn't have developed in part and accomplished that purpose. If the idea is that an unneed met, something that would contribute to the survival of the organism or survival of of the species would be met through random chance over time, this can't work. Because all of the things would have to be present at the same time, not incrementally be made to be present for it to function in that way, which is something very, very necessary. Who thinks clotting blood is necessary, right? Anybody who has had to be on certain medications that make clotting difficult, you know what I'm talking about, right? You have to kind of go around a little bit in a bubble, kind of aware that if I were to get just a simple cut, I would have to go to the hospital because it wouldn't clot. I would have the potential of bleeding out even from something very minor. So, in any event, that's what we're talking about. These things are clearly seen in nature. Now, what has God revealed? It says God revealed attributes, and those are understood by the things that are made, again, stated as a fact in the imperative, in the, sorry, um, in the indicative mood. These are clearly seen, and these are understood by the things that are made. See, this speaks to an internalization of God's revealed truth. Every person possesses this internal conscience and God awareness. This internal understanding and perception that God has placed within man, it works in conjunction with what is perceived. So these two things go together. There are things that are perceived, they're clearly seen by man's senses and man's observation, and then they're understood by man's internal conscience and God awareness. That's what God says is true such that man is without, ultimately, excuse, we'll get to. These revealed attributes, what do they include? They include his eternal power and Godhead, which refers to his divinity, God's divinity. Refers to the observable power, wisdom, and goodness exhibited by God in creation. And the idea is here, creation reveals God's divine nature in a way that is understood or understandable anyway, by the things that are made. What Paul is getting at is this is intentional on man's part to reject God and rebel against God. Man can't say, I didn't know. I didn't have any way to know. It it is stated very clearly here that man did know, that man had the evidence in front of him, and that man intentionally subverted that truth through ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now you want to look at a couple of, I guess I didn't, put it on here. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Creation reveals God's nature. Turn to Acts 14.17. We'll get at least a little bit of page turning in here this morning before we run out of time. Acts 14.17. That's a book right before Romans. If you're sort of new to the Bible, you just turn to your left a little bit be to Acts 14, 17. Nevertheless, He, God, did not leave himself without witness. In that, how how so? In that he did good, he gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Has God revealed himself? And the answer is, yes, he has. Is it understood by the things that are created? The Bible says, yes, it is. So through his observable power, wisdom, and goodness, that is exhibited in creation through things as simple as seasons. That's what I love about this, this verse. It's something as simple as rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. Man who is seeking to grow crops needs them to be watered, right? What, what explanation is there for all of a sudden the sky opens up and water that is needed covers and moistens everything that's there? It's not God that did that. We'll have to come up with some other explanation for that. But see, God's goodness is on display even in nature itself. His power is in display even in nature itself. Now, the primary conclusion of the sentence is that they are without excuse. So, God reveals his anger, his indignation, his lack of acceptance of man's sinfulness, man's ungodliness, man's unrighteousness, his displeasure at that. He then says, you knew better. You've known my truth has been revealed to you. And the conclusion of it all, though, is they are without excuse. See, the rest of the sentence defends the conclusion further by proving additional evidence of man's guilt. Now, catch this. It says, although they knew God. So, if we come back to verse, verses 20 and 21. They are without excuse because, now here's your explanation, because although they knew God, now it's going to contrast two things. See, how man should have responded is now contrasted with man's actual sinful response. So although they knew God, that's stated as a fact, they did not glorify him as God, that's what they should have done, nor were they thankful, that's the second thing they should have done. That should have been man's response, to glorify God, exalt him, lift him up, make him bigger, and be thankful. I hope that's your response. That that's the expected response. But what happened instead? They became futile in their thoughts, which means they began to think up foolish ideas. You see, despite having knowledge of a divine creator God, they canceled out the truth they had by exchanging God's truth for lies and foolish thoughts. Despite having knowledge of a divine creator God, they canceled out the truth they had when you talk about suppressing the truth by exchanging god's truth for satan's lies and foolish thoughts that's the idea there and then what was the result of that this was not what it should have been it should have been again they glorified him as god and were thankful but instead they have these they began to think up foolish ideas which led to their foolish hearts being darkened you could you could insert you could think of it in terms of as a result of having these foolish ideas, their minds became dark. Now, if something's dark, it means it's without light. What is God said to bring? Light. He's the thing that illuminates our thinking. So their minds became dark and without light and ultimately confused. Anyone see any confusion in their own life? Do you have confusion that creeps in when you're not staying your mind on the truths of God's word? You're not staying your mind on him? Yeah, foolishness creeps in. Confusion creeps in. Do you see that in the world around you? Confusion. You see, confusion expresses itself in many different ways. It's expressing itself today. It's been expressing itself since the very beginning. Expressed in many different ways. Remember, immorality, morality, and religion. All valid expressions of confusion that doesn't accept God's truth as it's been revealed. Now, this process was cumulative. It was collective, meaning they did it together and it was continual. Rebellion and rejection that took place over time, this didn't happen all at once. He's describing the plight of the, sort of the world itself under the influence of the sin nature and under the influence of Satan and how it ultimately gets to this place. But both of these negative outcomes, their passive voice, meaning when we talk about becoming futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts being darkened, these are a byproduct of the original action. Now, what was the original action? They suppressed the truth. When you suppress the truth, this is all that can happen. This is the only outcome you can have, that you have this foolish ideas and that those foolish ideas lead to minds that are dark and confused. Now let's look at these last two verses. Professing, this is just a continuation of the same thought. Professing to be wise. The, the, the continuation of this thought about foolish ideas and minds that are dark and confused, is that this is the expression of it, a more detailed expression of it, an example of it. So professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and finally creeping things. Now these verses, again, it's just a continuation. This is the natural result of having futile thoughts and foolish hearts. What did they do? They profess to be wise. This is what they thought was occurring, that they were wise. They profess to be to be wise. You see, many of the people that profess all of these things that stand in opposition to God's truth, they're sincere about it. They believe that they're right, but they're misguided, they're confused, they're wrong, they're incorrect. They're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. So they thought that they were wise, but what happened instead? What actually occurred is they became fools. That means to make dull, not acute, or to cause something to lose its taste or purpose for which it exists. That's my best, that's the best part of this definition. They became fools, meaning they lost the purpose for which they existed. They lost the purpose for which they existed. That's what happens to you and I. When we refuse to take in God's truth and internalize it, allow God to speak his truth into our lives to to live in light of God's truth. That's what happens. We don't mean it to happen, but we lose our very purpose for which we exist. The idea is that people through the suppression of truth regarding God the creator, they obscured redefined and ignored their very purpose for living and existing. Now, what was their very purpose for living and existing? It was to enjoy God, to worship God, and to glorify God. That's your purpose for living, to enjoy God, worship God, and glorify God. Now, what was the culmination of all that? They became fools. They worshiped idols or creation instead of the Creator, Now, the other expressions of, this is just listed as the first one, they started worshiping the wrong thing, which is idols in place of God. Now, when we get to verses 24 through 25, and then from 26 through 32, we're going to see all these various additional expressions of that rejection and rebellion against God. But you see where it started? It started with exchanging God's truth For lies. It it started with darkened minds, confused minds, futile and foolish minds. That's what it started with. Then it led to expressions of that, which was to lose your very purpose. Having lost your very purpose, which was to enjoy this intimate relationship with God, to worship Him, then to glorify Him, to serve Him, then what did they do instead? They started worshiping idols. Something besides God. And and note the progression of the worship of these idols. It started off with they exchanged the glory, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God, this perfect God, into a man-made image. Now it was made like a corruptible man, which I take to mean that it started out in shapes of human beings. And then what did it become? Idols that were shaped like birds and four-footed animals. And what did it finally become? Reptiles. So those of you who like snakes, just know that. That's the end of the progression. I don't want to make too much about that, but the, the the big idea here is they started worshiping something else other than the one they were made to worship and enjoy, which was God himself. So they made fake gods, false gods, gods that were not incorruptible, but things that were corruptible because they were made as a byproduct of corruption. So the story of human history, I want you to see this. It's not one of mankind having been created in a state of brokenness and ignorance. That's not how man was created. Pastor Weefel actually shared this with me. That's not, that's not how it started. That could have been, but that's not the story that we see here. Man was not created in a state of brokenness and ignorance. They were created, God said, he ended the crea- cre- his creative work with the phrase, all that he had created was very good. It was perfect. We, we, the story doesn't start, human history doesn't start with man then desperately searching for God in their ignorance and brokenness, and then eventually finding him. That's not the story. It was the exact opposite of that. Man was created in perfect union with God, who revealed himself for the express purpose of enjoying intimate fellowship with man, That's how it started. Things were perfect. There was a perfect union with God. He had revealed himself and he wanted to enjoy intimate fellowship with man. But instead of embracing and experiencing God personally and practically, man turned from truth and rejected and rebelled against God. That's the actual story of human history. See, and as we look at these verses today, they speak to that expression of that rebellious mindset. We have to see that that's how it actually went. God made it perfect. God made it possible for man or wanted man to experience closeness and intimacy with him. God revealed himself to man. Man then turned away from all of that in rebellion and rejection, thinking that they knew better than God with this me first kind of mentality. So there's gonna be all kinds of expressions of that. We covered a little bit of this expression of the rebellious mindset today. Next week, we're gonna continue with this discussion of what are the expressions then of this rebellious and rejecting mindset as it relates to God. Now, although this is the beginning of a much longer discussion of man's serious predicament, I hope that you don't leave today kind of run down by it, because this is just leading us to the primary theme, which is the primary theme is about how God had to step in and rescue and save, how God had to make a way where there was no way. So even though we'll spend a bunch of time looking at Houston, we have a problem, it doesn't stop there. Man has a problem, but God then is going to offer a solution to man's problem, which will be coming as we work through this book here. All right, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's referred to as communion at times, referred to as the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. And it's something that here at this church we choose to do on the first Sunday of each month. So if you're new here and you're unfamiliar, you're unfamiliar with that, just I guess have this explanation. It's a time to never forget it's an intentional time to remember, to never forget about what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus was willing to do as he became our sacrifice. That's what this time is about, about never forgetting. You know, so sometimes we, I've heard this with events just even in national history. Something tragic happens, and then there's things that come out, shirts, t-shirts, things on social media, whatever, L- little different memes or descriptions that just say, never forget, never forget. We're never going to forget this. We're never going to forget. Never. Come on. Of course we are. Of course we are. You personally maybe won't, but will, human, will, will will humanity forget? Yeah. How much about history do you know? Very little of all of it. So, yeah, it'll be forgotten. And God knew that. So Jesus, before he left, he said, he, he knew that he was going to sacrifice himself in the place of sinful mankind. Now his disciples, his followers, didn't fully understand that. But he had told them, he'd been, he'd been hinting at that, been telling them a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, that this was gonna happen. They were having trouble understanding it or accepting it because, well, it's a longer discussion. But in any event, he said, I want you to remember my death. I want you to remember my sacrifice. And the reason is because I'm doing this as an example that even you could, one, learn from and that you could even follow. Because remember, in the context, Jesus is also doing what? Washing feet, right? And then he starts to have a meal, a meal of fellowship. Then he says, don't ever forget that my blood This wine is like my blood that's going to be shed. Don't ever forget that this bread that we rip parts off as we pass it around the table. Remember, they were just eating a meal together. It wasn't this, where we were just taking these two elements and being intentional about it. As they're eating this meal, he's saying, as you see that bread being broken as you get together, as often as you gather and do that, think of me, my body that was broken for you. And he says, Paul's now talking about this looking backwards, but he says, don't do this. Don't eat and drink these elements, which are a picture of Christ's sacrifice unworthily with a mind that doesn't even understand what Christ has done. So I would say, if you don't understand what it means for Christ's blood to have been shed for you, His body to have been broken for you, for Him to have been a sacrifice for you, if you don't understand that, that the message of the Bible, even like the message of Romans, is man has a problem. We're identified with sin, God is perfectly holy and righteous. Man can't be with God unless something is done to break down this barrier of sin that is separating an unrighteous man from a perfectly holy, just, and righteous God. And that the cross becomes the mechanism by which Jesus Christ shatters this wall or this barrier of sin as he dies on a cross and he says, I love you this much. I will die for you. See, the wages of sin was death. It was separation from God. But the gift that God offers through his son's death in your place is eternal life. So he became sin for us even though he knew no sin so that we could become something we're not, the righteousness of God in him. So all of my iniquity was placed on Jesus Christ, all of my sinfulness, all of my brokenness, all of my failure, all of it was placed on him. And instead of me needing to die to pay the just penalty for my own sin, Jesus Christ said, I'll die in your place. And so he paid that debt. He bore that shame on Calvary for me and for you. And then the response is simply this. So if that's man's problem and if that's God's solution to send somebody else to be that final lamb, that sacrifice, that substitution for sin, and if he's going to die for all of the sin, then is sin man's problem anymore? No, sin's not man's problem anymore. The sin has already been paid for by Christ. That's why you see John three sixteen on the wall here. God did not send his son into the world, the next verse says, to condemn the world, but that the world through him could be saved. Saved from what? A hell they deserve to a heaven they don't. Then it says, he who believes is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. See, the issue now isn't sin. The issue is, have you accepted the rescue that's being offered to you? See, if all of the sin was paid for, what sin remains for you and I to pay for? The answer is none. So what's man's part in this? This is the thing man has trouble with. Man's part in this is to accept the gift that is being freely offered by Jesus Christ, having already accomplished what was needed to deal with your sin, to buy your pardon. He already bought your pardon. Imagine that you were a man convicted to death, you had been judged to be guilty, and you'd be, been sentenced to death. And then somebody else had come along, and they had purchased your pardon. They had, they had bought your freedom. However, that happened. In the case of Jesus Christ, by offering to die in your place. And the judge had said, well, as long as the debt is settled, it doesn't matter to me who settles it. If this person is willing to settle your debt, and they're offering to settle your debt... Do you accept their offer? And imagine being unwilling to accept the pardon that's already been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing here this morning. If you're trusting in your own efforts to save you, your religious rituals to save you, your human goodness to save you, you're rejecting that none of that could save you and that Jesus Christ has already paid your debt. You're trying to save yourself. And God's a perfect gentleman. He says, if you refuse to accept the pardon that's already been purchased, then you will die in your trespasses and sins. Because no matter how much you try to do, you'll never be able to overcome the debt that's owed for your sin. Because God's standard, remember, is perfect righteousness. Apparently that actually happened where a pardon had, I'm I'm not going to remember the details, where a pardon had been issued to somebody on death row and they refused it, and they were executed anyway. Hopefully that won't be you. But Jesus was saying, and Paul was explaining, when we celebrate this, we would be doing it unworthily. We'd be doing it with the, if we have the wrong mindset, but we'd also be doing it unworthily if we're remembering something we have no part of. So I would say if you're here this morning, you've never accepted what Jesus Christ has done, just let the let the bread, the the wafers pass you by. Let the Nobody's going to judge you for that, but you've got nothing to remember. But you know what? Right here in this moment, you could say, I understand what he's saying. Jesus did it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I'm going to trust that. I'm going to accept that. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to be convinced that that's true. And the moment you're convinced that that's true, that's called faith. You put your trust in something, that moment you're born again. You're born into God's family. Your citizenship changes from being in this earth to being a citizen of heaven. God seals you with his spirit and he says, I'll never let you go. Once you're a son, you're always his son because you've done nothing to get it. Naturally, you do nothing to keep it. God is the one who's faithful that does that for you. So at this point, I'd ask for those who are going to help with the communion to come forward and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, being mindful of remembering his death, burial, and resurrection for us.